Uh, I have you loud and clear. <laughs> Hello. 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 Welcome. Welcome. <laughs> Science. And that is to say, physics, medicine, nature, or space, time, the brain, life, the universe. Hello. Welcome to The Naked Scientists, the show where we bring you the latest breakthroughs in science, technology, and medicine with me, Phil Sansom, and with Chris Smith. This week, we're dedicating our entire program to asking just one question. Where did COVID come from? The Naked Scientists podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk. China is battling a new and rapidly spreading respiratory virus. A mysterious respiratory illness with similarities to SARS. Health experts have warned that the chances of containing it are diminishing as cases appear in more countries. Common public opinion is that the virus originated from a market in Wuhan in China from a pangolin. Multiple sources are telling Fox News today that the United States government now has high confidence that while the coronavirus is a naturally occurring virus, It emanated from a virology lab in Wuhan. The story that we've been told is that the coronavirus came from bats and jumped into humans sometime late last year at a seafood market in the city of Wuhan, China. It's a neat tale, but the problem is nobody actually knows whether it's true and the evidence is mixed, which is why the World Health Organization said... Over the past few months... There has been a lot of discussion about the origins of COVID-19. All preparations have been finalized and WHO experts will be traveling to China this weekend to prepare scientific plans with their Chinese counterparts for identifying the zoonotic sources of the disease. The WHO's Director General Tedros Ghebreyesus speaking there back in July. The two people that the WHO sent were just the advanced party for a much bigger group of scientists leaving soon for Wuhan to start asking hard questions. From the WHO, Michael Ryan. The answers on these questions are sometimes elusive and it's quite a detective story to find the source and the intermediate pathways by which the virus can breach that barrier to humans. We've spent decades trying to do that in Ebola. We've spent years trying to do that with MERS and SARS. It takes time, and it does take a meticulous, multi-sectoral approach to this. And we don't know where that species barrier was actually breached. This is very important, because unless we understand, like anything, if, 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 if the walls of your castle are breached, you need to know where the breach is, because you can fix and repair that breach. You can make sure that that is strengthened for the future. So we need to understand what was the, the track of this virus from the wild animal kingdom directly into humans, directly through farmed animals, directly into a market, one market, two, how many? We have to keep an open mind. Science must stay open to all possibilities. In this programme, we're exploring the possibilities, the evidence, and the gaps in the evidence. We'll first hear how the virus might have got from animals and into people. We'll talk to scientists who are questioning the time and place it actually emerged, and address whether the virus could have actually come from a lab. On the very last day of 2019, China reported an outbreak of a strange pneumonia in a cluster of people with links to the local Huanan live animal and seafood market. Two weeks later, 
the cause of the illness was identified as a new coronavirus, now named SARS-CoV-2, that causes the syndrome known as COVID-19. Since then, thousands of scientific papers have been published on the outbreak, including the genetic sequence of the new virus, which confirms its close relationship to coronaviruses carried by bats and therefore also gives us a clue as to where this coronavirus came from. Dennis Carroll heads the Global Virome Project. The coronaviruses, first and foremost, are a family of viruses. We estimate there are between four and 5,000 different coronaviruses, and virtually all of the ones that we've discovered to date, about 200, we've found in bats in different parts of the world, Asia, Africa, and in the Americas. And why bats? Well, we don't know why bats, except that bats are able to host viruses like coronaviruses without themselves having any adverse effects. And they will periodically shed these viruses in their feces or in their saliva. So they represent sort of an ideal host because a virus, when it does infect another animal, the last thing it wants to do is to kill that animal off. It speaks to its own demise as well. So they've developed a very sympathetic relationship with bats over the millennia. Are you saying that bats are the origin and when you get coronaviruses in other species, it represents a jump from a bat into that species, at least at some point in time? Well, first, let's be very clear. We don't have a definitive answer as to how the COVID-19 virus entered the human population. But we've seen enough examples of the virus moving either directly or indirectly from bats that that's the most reasonable explanation. There was some initial speculation to be confirmed that pangolin, another wildlife animal that is a food source uh, in China, may have acted as a spillover agent. But more work needs to be done to really clarify exactly what the transmission route might have been. One other avenue to pursue is you read the genetic code of, of a virus and then you go looking in the database to see what it's most closely related to, because that can sometimes point you in the right direction of where something came from. What story emerges when we do that sort of analysis? Many of the different coronaviruses circulating in these geographic areas do in fact have a strong genetic uh, relatedness to the COVID-19 genetic profile. So it speaks to a pedigree, a shared pedigree, so if that's the case then, and you're making a case of the fact that these viruses are actually pretty common, you can find them across a very diverse patch of China, why would they emerge in Wuhan? Well, the source is largely bats that are proximal to Wuhan City. And one of the things we know about bats, first and foremost, is that they have the ability to adapt and share uh, living space with human populations. And so what we've seen in Wuhan is an example of high interactive dynamics uh, between bat populations, possibly, again, secondary uh, intermediary hosts uh, with human populations. If we don't bring a human in close proximity to these infected animals, you will not get a spillover. 
So if that virus is present in Wuhan, in the bat population there, in the way that you're suggesting, surely the Chinese have already done sampling of the bats in Wuhan to try to find out if that's the case. If so, where is it then? Well, let's first off uh, acknowledge going out and collecting bats, identifying viruses is a very complicated exercise. So right now there isn't direct capture of a COVID-19 virus from a bat, uh, but at some point uh, it's inevitable that we will find it. Dennis Carroll. As this story was coming out, many were struck by a sense of deja vu, because this has happened before, in 2002, with an epidemic caused by another coronavirus, the one behind the original SARS, or Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome. Yeah, the original SARS outbreak. It's, it's like a, a cousin of the current virus. That's disease ecologist Peter Daszak, who's worked to try and curb the spread of these two viruses that came two decades apart. The new coronavirus is genetically quite similar to SARS and part of the same viral family, which is why it was called SARS-CoV-2. There's a lot we can learn from exploring the past here, because that is far from the only similarity. The original SARS outbreak began in South China, Guangdong province, where there are some really large cities, the city of Guangzhou, with very big wildlife markets. You know, people in South China have a tradition of eating wildlife that's very strong and still continues. And they have really large markets that bring an incredible diversity of animals together. And these animals can be in the in the wildlife trade for weeks. So they're swapping viruses around between each other. They're picking up new viruses. And then when they get to the market, there are thousands of people that go in and out of these markets. And SARS, the original SARS outbreak, began in a wildlife market. It was very clear the first cases were related. And, you know, we started working there at the end of the outbreak to say, well, if the, if the market is where it began, which animal did it come from? And where in China was that animal first caught? Because the virus could still be out there. What did you find? At the time, people were saying that civets, these sort of small ferret or badger-like animals, were the source of the virus. And what we found was that's not really the case, that bats are the real reservoirs. They're the animals that carry these viruses and have done probably for millions of years in the wild. And then the virus got into other species of animals in the markets, in the wildlife trade, and then got into people. So we traced the virus back to rural China, and we ended up in Yunnan province, which is a really beautiful part of southwest China, which has a lot of wildlife diversity, a lot of um, intact countryside. And it looks like they were picked up by people hunting bats and bringing them into markets, and, and the virus got spread then through the trade. That certainly sounds a lot like SARS-CoV-2, because we really think that came originally from bats, don't we? Yeah, without a doubt. It's pretty clear that, that bats are the origin. Every relative of the whole SARS group of viruses is found in bats, and the closest known relatives to SARS-CoV-2 are from bats as well. Peter Daszak. We'll hear more from him later in the program. It seems likely then that bats are the reservoir for the new coronavirus, but what we don't know is how it got from them and into us. Because, as we heard just now, scientists haven't yet found an animal that is actually carrying the new coronavirus. Here's disease ecologist Rainer Plowright. 
this virus hasn't actually been sampled in bats. And that, that's fair because it would take sampling thousands and thousands of bats to find every single coronavirus that is in existence. But we know the virus, similar viruses circulate in horseshoe bats. We know that they circulate in the area of Southeast Asia, and Southern China, Northern Vietnam, Myanmar, Laos. And so perhaps the virus came from that region. Did it come within a bat to Wuhan or did it come within a human? We don't know. One of the, the challenges with coronaviruses is that of the three coronaviruses that have spilled over from animals to people in the last uh, 20 years, each of those potentially has spilled into the human population through a single event. And then for this pathogen, the circumstances are still a mystery, but perhaps it was a single event from a bat either into a human or into a bridging host. So we've talked about pangolins as a potential bridging host, uh, civets, ferrets. We know that felines are actually very susceptible as well. I mean, I mean is there any way of telling whether there was like a species in the middle or it went straight from bats to humans? We don't know at this point. But one of the, the really critical questions is, was the virus supercritical in bats? What I mean by supercritical is that when it infects a human, that human can not only be infected, but that human can then infect others at a rate that's high enough to sustain a train, chain of transmission. And earlier on, we thought that perhaps in bats, the virus wasn't in a form where it could just take off and spread in humans that it needed a little bit of a genetic mix-up and that maybe that mix-up happened in another species. But more recent evidence is seeming to suggest that actually <clears throat> these may be supercritical ready in bats, just that we haven't sampled the right bat to find the right pathogen. But I do think that we could still try to understand this event by going into the regions where we know the similar viruses occur the southern area of China and that area of northern Vietnam, Laos, Myanmar, and looking at people and then trying to do the serological surveys, looking for exposure to, to other coronaviruses, trying to understand how spillover occurs from, from animals to people. Is that kind of what a spillover means? We often think of spillover as this simple jump. And I think because we often don't see it, we think of it very simplistically. But when you start to deconstruct all of the things that have to happen for spillover to occur, it's very, very complicated. And it's really quite extraordinary that it occurs at all. And I think it is actually very rare. So if you think about it, every time you leave your house, which isn't that often these days, right? But when we do, we're breathing the air and that air is full of microbes but we don't often get sick. So a whole bunch of things have to align. You have to have the reservoir host, that host has to be infected, that virus has to get out of the reservoir host. For example, coronaviruses is shed in the feces of bats. Often the virus has to survive in the environment for some time. And then it gets really complicated because then the virus has to go through a whole bunch of barriers within us to allow it to infect our cells, to replicate in the cells, to be able to exit the cells, disseminate through our body. It has to be able to overcome our innate immune system. And then it's gonna be able to exit us. It's gonna be able to be transmitted to the next person. Because it's somewhat rare for all of those things to line up at one point in space and time, spillover is a relatively rare phenomenon. Raina Plowright, she's at Montana State University. 
We've just heard that there are a few ways that viruses can jump from animals and into humans. But the wildlife trade is still a prime suspect here, because as wild animals are caught, shipped along to cities and served at markets and restaurants, scientists at the Wildlife Conservation Society have shown that as you move along this supply chain, the number of animals infected with coronaviruses goes up alarmingly. Eva Higginbotham spoke with lead researcher Amanda Fine. We looked at the live rodent trade, rodents that are collected by traders, then moving through to large markets and to restaurants to look at the prevalence and also the diversity of coronaviruses. We found significant differences with traders, trappers. We had about 18% of those samples we tested were positive. And then as we got to large markets where you're bringing in animals from a lot of different sources, we were up to 32.8%. And then at the end consumer, primarily in restaurants, we had just over 50% were positive. What we're seeing is the result of animals with their coronaviruses coming from many different places, mixing, transmission occurring. Many of those animals in the trade chain are stressed and therefore more susceptible to virus and potentially would shed more virus. As they go further to the end consumer, they're meeting more animals from different populations and you get more transmission and therefore more samples that are positive when you test. So the number of animals that have coronavirus goes up, but what about people? We would expect that the risk of one of those viruses moving from the wildlife to the people, the more there are, the higher the risk. How a human would become infected with a virus very much depends on the kind of contact they have. The more contact you have, the more potential there is for transmission. So definitely handling exposure to the virus in the environment and direct contact through consumption of the wildlife as well. Does that also increase the risk for making a virus that is going to be more of a problem for humans because you have more mixing of more viruses in more animals in close proximity? We definitely think so. In this study, we show that you have an increase in the overall number of these coronaviruses. That is more opportunity for different individual viruses to recombine in an individual or for those to recombine and and infect another. So that is the process through which a new virus emerges. So it's kind of like a perfect storm for speeding up evolution of these viruses in a way. Absolutely. Amanda Fine of the Wildlife Conservation Society. The paper describing that study was published in PLOS One. Sorry to butt in, Katie here from The Naked Scientists. Did you know we make other naked shows too? The fraction of all humanity who has actually gotten a chance to see their own brain is very tiny and you are welcomed to that club. So if you enjoy musing over the mind, reflecting on thought or frankly feel bamboozled by the brain, check out Naked Neuroscience. Well, my face hurts now, so yeah, let's go with spicy. (laughs) Don't go down into the creepy cellar and turn the light on. (laughs) Exactly. Access the full archive via nakedscientist.com slash neuroscience or subscribe to Naked Neuroscience wherever you get your podcasts.
We've learnt then that this new virus is strikingly similar in more ways than one to the original SARS epidemic in 2002. And since that was traced to a huge reservoir of coronaviruses in bats, we can confidently say that the COVID virus comes originally from the same reservoir. But now we need to address some of the gaps in the story. First, a quick geography lesson. Wuhan, where the pandemic was first picked up, is a city in the Chinese province of Hubei, which is roughly in the centre of the country. Peter Dashak mentioned earlier two provinces that are in the very south, Guangdong, which is where SARS-1 made the leap into humans, and Yunnan, a rural province where the bats carrying SARS-1 are thought originally to have come from. These are notable, Guangdong and Yunnan, for various reasons that Peter explains. For COVID, the wildlife market seems to have been a place where there were lots of people spreading the virus. It doesn't look like that was the actual origin of the virus. It seems that there were some patients that didn't have contact with the market, and they were the first few to be identified. So it looks like it came from somewhere else. It got into the market system and then spread rapidly within people. In fact, we've known since January that the first reported COVID case had no link to the market and neither did a dozen cases from the initial batch. So if the jump to humans didn't happen there, then where? Evidence from the genetic sequences of viruses sampled early in the outbreak indicates that it may not have been Wuhan at all, as Cambridge University's Peter Forster explains. We analysed the first 160 coronavirus genomes, taken mainly from uh, patients in East Asia, but also from uh, the first patients in the Western world, so Australia, Europe, North America. And uh, we applied what we call a network algorithm to reconstruct how the viruses are related to each other. It's like a family tree. And we found at the beginning of March, there were three main types of viruses. We call them A, B, and C. And uh, we compared these ABC types with the bat coronavirus, which clearly show that the A type was the ancestral type. And that was a surprise because the A type is not common in the Chinese city of Wuhan. It's the B type that is most common there. Up to then, I had believed that the virus had come from the fish market in Wuhan. And somehow that didn't seem compatible with our analysis. I thought there was only one coronavirus, though. What do you mean there's an A, B, and a C? These viruses mutate all the time. They change. A, B, and C differ from each other by mutations. A differs from B by two mutations, which changes an amino acid, so the virus now looks slightly different. B has mutated into C by another amino acid change, so the virus, again, looks a bit different. In the course of March, we've had a quite amazing development a B subtype, which was about 3% of our sample in early March, now has become the dominant type across the world. Then if you get this B type of coronavirus, do you get sick in a different way compared to if you had the original A type, for example? An American group looked at 100 patients who have this new B subtype, which has become dominant, and another 100 patients who have other coronavirus types. And they saw no major clinical differences. But what they did see was those patients with the new B subtype, they have a higher viral load. And it is immediately obvious then if you have more virus and then you cough and sneeze, you can infect people more easily. And therefore, this virus type will become dominant. And and that is what seems to have happened. 
what what does your tree then tell you about when these different strains evolved basically roughly every two weeks the virus undergoes one mutation and if we take a look at how many mutations there are in our reconstructed network of viruses we can see the ancestral virus started spreading between the 13th of september and the 7th of december that is what we call the 95 percent confidence interval that's months before the first reported case uh, well i don't think so to be honest because the first reported case published in the lancet in january was a patient who fell ill on 1st of december so that means this patient must have been infected at the end of november and that is precisely what our time estimate says there are uh, scientists who have calculated a beginning of the disease in december mid december or so but this is because they don't have these network algorithms to calculate accurately where the root type is how fast the virus is mutating and so forth but we're talking here about differences of only weeks okay that's the when what about the where because you said you were skeptical about the uh, wet market theory in Wuhan city. Well, I think our results have made me skeptical about the Wuhan fish market theory. I mean, especially since the first patient diagnosed had no contact with the fish market. Now, uh, you may know in January, there was the Chinese New Year's festival. The Chinese celebrate New Year and people travel. So I decided, well, let's make a cutoff date for the middle of January and let's see where the A-types occur. And for this very early period, we have 23 virus genomes in Wuhan, and only three of them are A-types, the other 20 are B-types. Whereas in other parts of China, you have more A-types. So for example, in Guangdong, in southern China, you, you have about 50% A-types. You have an A-type in Yunnan province. These are areas where the bat populations are. And therefore, I think if someone twists my arm and, and says, where did this virus come from? I think it's slightly more likely it came from the southern provinces than from Wuhan. How sure are you, Peter? Not sure at all for the origin, because we have such small sample sizes. I mean, I told you there are 40 genomes available for the period between Christmas and mid-January. You can hardly do statistics on such a very small sample size, so I'm not sure. Peter Forster. And those findings are available in the journal PNAS. So if the coronavirus did first get into humans somewhere far south of Wuhan, as this evidence suggests, why did no one notice? One possible answer is that these spillovers from animals to humans are more common than you might think, and they're often difficult to detect. This was certainly the conclusion of Maury Miller from Columbia University, who worked with Zheng Li Shi from the Wuhan Institute of Virology to test people in rural China for an entirely different coronavirus. We went to a place in Yunnan where she had found a bat that could cause potential harm to humans. And what we found was that 3% of the population that lived near the bats that were infected with these coronaviruses had already been infected. So spillover is quite a common occurrence. So th this isn't the coronavirus that's caused the pandemic. This is just a random other one. It is a separate coronavirus. It is not close at all. There are many, many coronaviruses that bats carry. 
only 1% of them are estimated to cause any kind of disease in humans. And what had been believed prior to this was that it always had to go through a secondary animal and then get transmitted to humans. Shengli Shi was the first person to discover that bat coronaviruses could be potentially transmitted directly to humans. And we were able to prove that, yes, indeed, that was so. Why on earth did you suspect it might infect humans then? That is the work that Shengli Shi does. So she has collected genetic sequences for various coronaviruses that bats carry. This particular one had a spike that is able to directly infect humans. And who did you go out and test? This was Yunnan province. And we just uh, tested all kinds of community members, farmers, foresters, hunters. And when we found 3% positivity, there was no particular demographic profile that had higher risk. Because we know, in general, hunters have a higher risk. They kill the animals, the animals can scratch them, but they were no higher risk than anybody else in that community. I mean, how is that possible? Exactly. So bats are really everywhere. They often live in the roofs of houses. People go into caves where bats live to collect bat guano because it is a very valued fertilizer for crops. There's all kinds of mechanisms of exposure and bats are fairly revered in China. So everybody knows where they are and respects them and thinks nothing of them. Is that not kind of scary? I mean, in in Yunnan province, why wasn't there a pandemic that began? With this particular coronavirus, it appears to not have caused noteworthy disease. This particular, our COVID-19, so many of the cases were asymptomatic. So we wouldn't notice. We wouldn't notice that anyone was infected because everyone feels fine. When we start to notice it, is when there is an increase in death, particularly among the elderly, from pneumonia. But pneumonia is a leading cause of death among the elderly, particularly in rural areas. So people may not have noticed that there was excess death. I mean, is the implication that the new coronavirus started like this? Absolutely. Spillover is much more prevalent than we think it is. What's different about COVID-19 is that it spreads human to human. A lot of zoonotic disease spillover spreads from the animal directly to the human, and then the human does not transmit it to another human. When it becomes dangerous is when it mutates and then can become transmissible from human to human. So it could well have been sitting around in people in rural China that may not have even noticed it for a while just because this seems to happen quite a lot. Absolutely. And because it was asymptomatic, it could have been spreading for quite some time before anybody noticed it. And in fact, to support that idea, in the United States, in New York City, a group of researchers at Northeastern University estimated that more than 10,000 people were already infected with COVID-19 before we identified the first community-acquired case on March 1st. We were also expecting to find a case 
and we missed it. Maureen Miller there, providing possible evidence for an early rural origin of the coronavirus that lingered for a while in humans before the large population centre that is Wuhan City provided the catalyst that caused it to explode internationally. You can read about that study in a letter to the journal Virologica Sinica. The Naked Scientists podcast is produced in association with Spitfire, cost-effective voice, internet and IP engineering services for UK businesses. Find out how Spitfire can empower your company at spitfire.co.uk. Music in the programme is sponsored by Epidemic Sound, perfect music for audio and video productions. Part of the reason the coronavirus has been so successful, apart from the fact that more than half of cases may be asymptomatic, is that it's also very good at infecting us. And that's been true since the very first recorded cases in Wuhan. Alina Chan from the Broad Institute and Xing Zan from the University of British Columbia have analysed the genetic sequences from some of the first samples collected and compared them. They then compared that variation to the first SARS and spotted something odd. Alina first. SARS-2 is much more similar to SARS-1 in the late phase of its epidemic. In the case of SARS-1, when it first crossed from animals into humans, we could see that the virus underwent adaptation to the new host, which was humans. And this was in the early phase of the epidemic. The virus was mutating, finding adaptive mutations that could help it transmit amongst humans. But by the time it hit the late phase of the epidemic, this genetic diversity was greatly reduced. So this finding suggested that by the time we detected SARS-2 in December of 2019, it was already really optimized or highly adept at human transmission. So we're missing this whole period where SARS-2 should have been rapidly adapting to its new host. And this raises really important questions about where did SARS-2 come from? Xing, could you please explain genetically what it means here for uh, the SARS-2 to be similar to the late versions of SARS-1 rather than the early ones. What does genetic similarity mean here? Within roughly the first three months of each outbreak, the genome of SARS-2 had about one-fourth the amount of genetic diversity that was found in SARS-1. And we did have genetic sequence data for four samples in the Wuhan night seafood market. And we compared the genome sequences recovered from those samples to the genome sequence of the Wuhan reference of SARS coronavirus 2. And what we found was that they're very similar. And what that led us to think was maybe the outbreak that was happening at the market didn't start from some non-human intermediate host, but instead it could have come from some people who were already infected at the time and they were doing some grocery shopping at the market. Where were these samples actually from? Were they from like bits of meat or something? The samples were, for example, doorknobs. They had even some samples from the sewers, and they have samples from the surfaces of garbage trucks. What it looked like to us was that the sequences were just very similar to that from humans. So there was no real evidence based on that data that the virus came from some animal sold at the market. Alina, was this surprising to you? Yeah, so in the case of SARS-1, they went straight to the local market and there they found numerous species of animals that carried SARS-1-like viruses. 
But importantly, these SARS-1-like viruses were not a 100% match. And that's where we're surprised here. Here in SARS-2, when you look at the samples from the market, they're all nearly virtually 100% identical to the human version. And so what that suggests is that these viruses were not from animals that were you know, the source of the virus, but rather that they had been dropped by humans who were infected and had visited the market. In that case, where did this actually come from then? There are three different scenarios that are plausible. One of them is SARS-2 would have crossed from an animal into humans a long time ago. This could be months to years, and it just circulated undetected in the human population for that amount of time, picking up adaptive mutations along the way. And then it finally broke out in Wuhan once it had reached the state of you know, high adaptation to human transmission. The second scenario, that SARS-2 was already pre-adapted for humans while in bats or an intermediate host. And the last scenario, which is the most controversial, is that SARS-2 could have resulted from lab-based scenarios. And we're not saying this to accuse anyone of malicious intent. Lab accidents, they happen frequently. Even the first SARS has escaped from many world-class labs multiple times. Sometimes lab accidents happen. Alina Chan, and before her, Xing Zan. That research has not yet been peer-reviewed, but it's available to view via the preprint site BioArchive. Now, we've already discussed the idea that the virus could have been around in humans for a while before it appeared in Wuhan. That would certainly explain why the virus is so well adapted to people. And in a similar vein, Nick Petrovsky from Flinders University in Australia has been doing computer modelling of the part of the surface coat of the virus, a region called the spike protein that it uses to attach to human cells, and the corresponding human structure called ACE2 that the spike binds onto. Other animals have their own versions of ACE2 as well, but Nick's work shows that the spike protein is much weaker at attaching to animal versions than to the human form, and he's willing to speculate about whether this is a hint that the virus could be man-made. We use computer simulations which are are very similar to computer programs that predict the weather, and they simulate each individual atom within a protein, and we can then use those to actually simulate the ACE2 from 13 different species, ranging from bats to pangolins to humans to cats and dogs. The spike protein was predicted by our simulations to be the perfect key for the human ACE2, but not for the ACE2 from the other species, suggesting that humans were the original host. Obviously, that can't be entirely true in the sense that this is a new virus which has obviously come from somewhere. Humans don't just invent viruses in their own bodies. So where did it come from then? One possibility that was put forward is that the virus has been circulating in humans in China unknown for many years. But typically, you know, we would know about that. You know, people would be getting sick. And so then we have to look for other questions. Either it was a very rare chance event, or maybe it was designed specifically to be uh, able to bind to human cells and infect them. What about if we just explore the animals for a minute? Because all, all throughout this story, we've heard various suggestions, people saying it started as a bat virus, it in some way mixed with a pangolin virus and produced this perfect storm for humans. 
Is that not the most likely scenario here, that it's a mix-and-match virus that's got a few bits and pieces from various places, and, and by the time we're now studying it, it's just had enough time to optimise itself so it looks like a perfect fit for humans? Well, certainly that's possible, but if that was true, the virus itself and its ancestor should be able to be found in whatever animal that virus was created. In fact, the closest relative that's been found is a bat virus, which has about 96 to 97% similarities. Just to orientate you, um, the similarity between the genes in a, a mouse and a human are 99%. So it's definitely not a perfect match. But there's also part of the spike protein we were talking about, which is very critical to binding human cells, is actually more closely related to a pangolin coronavirus spike protein than it is to the, the bat. And that's where this idea that COVID-19 had a, a father that was a bat virus and a mother that was a, a pangolin virus, and, and that's how it came about as the progeny. That's certainly possible, but then we, we should expect to find the progeny in, in pangolins, which we haven't. If it didn't then happen in a bat or a pangolin, how did it happen? One hypothesis we haven't discussed so far is that this happened in a laboratory where scientists routinely culture viruses and grow them. And so it's possible that you could get, if in a laboratory you were growing some bat viruses in, in one test tube and you were growing some pangolin viruses in another test tube, and they accidentally got mixed up in the presence of human cells, then you could create something like COVID-19 quite accidentally, even without deliberately intending to do that. And if you did intend to do it deliberately? We do uh, know in some laboratories there is research going on that's called gain-of-function research, where you deliberately try to genetically modify viruses to make them a lot more lethal and in particular to make them more infectious to humans. And this is done to really try and predict what might be the next pandemic virus. And of course, that creates enormous issues about, you know, should you be creating a potential monster or are you better to just wait till nature does it and then respond to it? And is there a smoking gun here then that that may have happened? We can't exclude the possibility that it happened. So there's nothing scientifically that says this definitely didn't happen. We haven't yet found that wild COVID-19 ancestor. But if it was found, well, that would essentially say, yes, it, it, it was out there in wilder animals and it, it crossed to humans. In terms of the laboratory hypothesis, Essentially, it would require an investigation of the most likely laboratories. Neither of these things are easy to do, of course. Nick Petrovsky, that study is another preprint and again, therefore not peer-reviewed yet, but it is available on the site Archive. We can't therefore rule out the possibility that the new coronavirus came from a lab. As we heard earlier, the closest bat virus is 96% similar to the COVID-19 virus, but that 4% difference is a big sticking point. 
This new coronavirus also has an additional piece of genetic material in its spike protein. This is called a furin cleavage site, and it makes the new virus much better adapted to spreading among humans. So is this by human design? Virologists like David Robertson from the University of Glasgow nevertheless say no. When we compare the new human virus to the closest bat virus, it's about 4% different. And so that's relatively genetically close, but in terms of time, that represents many decades. And so that's telling us that the last shared ancestor was some considerable time ago. And so what this is telling us is there are circulating viruses, probably in bats, that we haven't sampled yet that gave rise to this new human virus. Surely, though, if that ancestor for this SARS-CoV-2, which is causing the pandemic, was frequent enough in its population to jump into people, why have we not found it then? To directly answer that, we can't be sure how frequent it is. So it could have been a a one-off or a very small population of bat viruses that accidentally or incidentally got into humans. Or alternatively, we just haven't sampled well enough. And so there is a quite extensive lineage of viruses in the bats that just hasn't been sampled. Your hypothesis then would be if we were to to hunt carefully enough, we might find a a species, probably a bat, that's harbouring the more direct ancestor of what is COVID. Yes, almost certainly. I, I think that's what all the data is pointing towards. Along the way, though, David, there have been interesting sort of spin-offs of this, where initially people tried to implicate snakes as being part of the equation, and then attention focused on these scaly mammals, the pangolins. How do these other species fit into this picture then? Well, well, some of them are just really poor analysis and a misinterpretation of um, some of the signals in the data. For the pangolins, we have recovered viruses that are close to the human virus, but it's not that the virus in the animal reservoir has adapted to humans per se, it's that it's a bit of a generalist, and that's allowed it then to jump to several species. People have mentioned that the spike on the outer coat of the virus has some special characteristics that they're arguing set it apart or make it stand out. What are they getting at? The main one is there's a furin cleavage site in the spike uh, protein, and that's a, a little bit of additional sequence. And that's unique to the SARS-CoV-2 lineage. There's no animal, I guess, equivalent of that sequence. But what we do know is that because these viruses can generate hybrids, they, they what we call recombine, and, that, and that's a, probably what's happened in this case. Does that furin cleavage site make a difference to the way the virus behaves then? We believe it's increasing the ability of the virus to bind to the human receptor, making it much more transmissible. Is there a possibility then, based on, on the uniqueness of this structure and how effective it is, that this is the work of human hands? Nature didn't endow us with this. Um, I would say it seems very unlikely because so many of the properties of this new virus we just didn't know about. You know, we just we didn't know what the closest relative viruses were. We we still don't know. For a human to engineer a virus that's so unique and and, and complicated and, and in unexpected ways, it's just very unlikely. If you were to engineer a virus, you would have started with the first SARS virus and you would work from there. You know, you wouldn't invent some novel virus with parts that we'd never seen before. It just it just seems very implausible. 
What about if it was an accident, as in someone's working on different coronaviruses and they just by chance happen to mix them up? And as you've said, they very often trade bits of genetic information between themselves. Could they not disclose this because it's so good at what it does, it would just naturally pop out and and outgrow all the others and off it goes? Well, I think first the overwhelming evidence is that these events can occur naturally. And so if you discover that you have viruses that are in reservoirs that can transmit to humans, they have all the parts quite naturally. I think that's where the weight of the scientific evidence points towards. David Robertson. Now, the missing person at the centre of this story is Zengli Shi. We mentioned her briefly earlier. She's the director of the Centre for Emerging Infectious Diseases at the Wuhan Institute of Virology. She's also been nicknamed Batwoman in the Chinese press. A lot of what we know about these bat coronaviruses comes from research from her and her institute and, as you can expect, claims that the new coronavirus escaped from a lab generally involve her and the institute, not least because many of the coronaviruses that are closely related to SARS-CoV-2 were discovered and worked on there by she and her team. Zengli Shi has said on the record that she never expected this kind of thing to happen in Wuhan in central China. But she also said that the allegation that the virus came from her lab, quote, totally contradicts the facts. We can't get in touch with her at the moment. Very few people can. But Maureen Miller from Columbia University worked with her and has kind of an idea of what she might say. Well, first, I don't want to put words in her mouth, but I do understand how frustrating it must be to have spent an entire career trying to prevent exactly the same kind of scenario that we're seeing right now and people not heeding warnings, people not conducting more studies like we did in Yunnan province where we found a bat that had a virus that could cause disease in humans. We have the technology to be able to do that. We know the global hotspots. We could be surveilling those areas. If we've heard one phrase more than any other in this program, it's, we don't know. We can make guesses and gather evidence and hypothesize, but until someone finds the ancestor to this coronavirus, it's going to remain a dangling question mark. That said, there are a few things scientists like Peter Daszak do know, and that's that if we've had SARS-1 and SARS-2, you can bet that there will be more. I don't think if we had a SARS-3, I think when we'll have a SARS-3. There are hundreds of these viruses out there. People are increasingly well-connected on the planet. Every day, these viruses are finding it easier to get into people and spread around the world. So we will have another one. But whether we're going to be better prepared, I really hope so. But I'm not confident that we'll learn our lesson. We haven't so far. Could this have only happened here in this part of the world, Southeast Asia? Oh, well, we know diseases emerge in just about all countries. You know, um, we've had our own in the UK with BSE, mad cow disease, and salmonella in eggs back in the 80s. The US has had plenty of new diseases, West Nile virus, monkeypox. It's especially common in places where there's a high wildlife diversity and lots of people doing lots of things in the environment, building new roads into forests, hunting and eating wildlife. We need to 
reassess our relationship with nature. First of all, we need to understand where these things come from and appreciate that when we build a road into the forest, it can be really beneficial to our economic success, but it also has a cost to it. And that cost is not just climate change or loss of an acute species, it's also pandemics. Unfortunately, while COVID may have convinced people and governments that international collaboration, surveillance and wildlife management are important, when it comes to why these outbreaks happen and why scientists expect them to happen increasingly more often in future, the elephant in the room is us. Dennis Carroll. The biggest simple ingredient is population and population having high interaction with wildlife. The population explosion in China over the last century has meant urban settlements moving closer to wildlife domains, agricultural activities, bringing human populations close to wildlife, and the disruptive effect of land use change, all creating a combustible situation where people and wildlife animals are interacting on a scale that is unprecedented. If the driver is human population and that is going up at an increasing rate, what's the outcome? Are we going to see this even more often then? Well, we are going to see it more often. As you said, population is increasing. We'll soon hit 10 billion and by the end of the century, 11 to 12 billion people. So you can expect that as we move into the 21st century, we're going to start seeing the consequences of that dramatic growth in human population. And the population dynamics of the world is changing dramatically. Asia, in fact, is contracting. China will have fewer people in 2050 than it did in 2000. But when we look at sub-Saharan Africa, there you're going to see most of the growth and in South Asia, in India specifically. So as we move into the 21st century, you can expect sort of the risk profile of emerging diseases to follow suit with the population increase uh, in these other geographic areas as well. And according to Raina Plowright, as we keep shrinking the wild spaces of the world, we're going to be gambling against the next pandemic more and more often. At the moment, the the way that we're crisscrossing the world with roads, fragmenting our ecosystems into smaller and smaller patches, which then create larger edges, larger contact zones, we're certainly rolling the dice more often. We're rolling the dice thousands of times a day. But every time we have a new pathogen jump into the human population, we're taking the chance that it has just the right characteristics to be able to infect that person in the first place and then spread. And so many of these pathogens, they're probably even going unseen. For example, hospitals around the globe are full of people who have encephalitis or respiratory problems without any diagnosed etiology. So no, no pathogens actually ever isolated. There's no cause actually found. And this is probably happening all the time. These spillover events occur, uh, someone gets sick, and we never hear anything about it. It seems kind of uh, inevitable though, right? I mean, what is there that we can do to stop like more pandemics? We need to look at what are the, the factors that really drive these events. And those factors are having wildlife populations that are stressed, so perhaps more likely to be infected, more likely to be shedding the pathogens. And we see that with other pathogens like Hendra virus in bats in Australia. When the bats are nutritionally stressed, we'll see more viral shedding. 
We also will see it when there's more contact. So we need to limit human contact, with, especially with these novel populations. So limit the intrusions into forests, limit fragmentation, limit road development, and try to keep large intact areas. Intact areas of wilderness where animals can do their thing, they can seek their food, they can move freely without having to come into human populations, without having to come into villages to look for food, and without having to come into contact with people because they're trying to make their living and, and survive. Which means that even while we're scrabbling to survive this pandemic, we need to overcome any instinct to be short-sighted and we need to start planning for the next one. Peter Dashak. I think that's partly human nature. We don't like to spend money and inconvenience ourselves for rare events. And pandemics are rare events. Even if they're once every 10 years, it's long enough between them to forget about the severity of the last one. We also have trouble justifying this to politicians who have to spend the money. You don't get voted in for saying, we're going to spend millions of dollars to prevent a disease that we don't even know exists yet. You get voted in for saying, look how heroically I dealt with the Ebola outbreak or the previous outbreak. So this is partly human nature. And I think we've got to realise we need to be smarter than that. Thank you to Peter Dashak, as well as all the other guests on our programme this week. Dennis Carroll, Rena Plowright, Amanda Fine, Peter Forster, Maureen Miller, Alina Chan, Xing Zan, Nick Petrovsky, and David Robertson. And that is it for this week. As usual, you can find links to all the papers we've discussed on our website, nakedscientist.com, as well as transcripts for all of the interviews. And if you've got any questions or comments about the show, do get in touch. Email chris at nakedscientist.com. Or feel free to use the online form on our site, that's nakedscientists.com slash question. Join us next week as we look up into space and take a tour of telescopes. From their history to the final frontier, how do we peer into the Milky Way? The Naked Scientist comes to you from the Institute for Continuing Education at the University of Cambridge and is supported by Rolls-Royce. I'm Phil Sansom, and until next time, from all of us here at the Naked Scientist team, goodbye! Goodbye!